Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the HOCL industry. HOCL is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. With dozens of use cases, HOCL is the most important chemical of the 21st century. Combining the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water, HOCL will revolutionize skin care, wound care, pet care, food processing, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at hocla.org. My guest today is Deborah Dubris. Deborah is revolutionizing the role of leaders to meet 21st century challenges. Applying science-based techniques along with social-emotional intelligence, Deborah's clients learn to thrive under pressure. They quickly and effectively adapt to the fast-paced and ever-changing environment of uncertainty, growth, and change. Clients include C-suite executives, senior leaders, managers, and their teams, as well as pro athletes, including pro golfers, along with NFL players from the Dallas Cowboys, Green Bay Packers, Seattle Seahawks, and many more. From the locker room to the boardroom, Deborah has trained, consulted, and coached in nine different countries and over four continents. Clients appreciate her no BS attitude and training methods and have dubbed her their secret weapon. With only a high school diploma, Deborah catapulted her own career from answering telephones as a receptionist to become the owner and CEO of a $20 million corporation. Her most current book is titled Average is an Addiction, From Mediocre to Millions. Thank you so much for joining me today, Deborah, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Pacifico. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. So let's dig in a little bit. Take me back. How did you first become interested in helping people to become better leaders? It's a short and meaningful story. I was born and raised in a small town just outside of Chicago, and... uh, When I was 12 years old, my brother was killed in a car accident about uh, five days before Christmas. And I didn't realize at the time the massive long-term effect that was going to have on me. It took me about 18 years after I was married, had two children, moved to Arizona. And I realized that I couldn't say my brother's name or smell Aquanet hairspray without going into tears. So I needed to find a solution. I wasn't happy with that. And I figured out, I figured I need to do something to help myself. And that became my, began my journey of studying 
you know, neuroscience, brain research, NLP, hypnosis, body language, conscious language, behavioral psychology, sports psychology, you name it. I can talk about angels and I can talk about synapses. So whatever it is, I've studied it, applied it. And because of that, it helped me grow my own career, as you mentioned, from answering phones as a receptionist to owning and running a $20 million commercial construction company. Once I sold that company, I had already started to, within the company, um, teach and lead a course that I'd written called The Spirit of Entrepreneurial Leadership, because I figured if I could, once I found the ways to help myself out of something that was so dramatic and traumatic, it was time to help others to lead a fuller life as well. Wow, that is quite the intense journey. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. And it's surprising, not surprising to me anymore, but surprising when I work with leaders around the world who are high performers, how many of them have been through some type of either tragedy, tragedy, <laughs> tragedy, adversity, or a challenge of some sort that was traumatic and dramatic to them. It may not be to others, but it was to them. And it's because of that, that often they go down the path of being a intense ultimate performer. Yeah, I've definitely seen that just from the 50, 60 guests I've had on the show so far, where I talk about whether it's failure, overcoming adversity, things of that nature, and tons of people, whether it's coming off of a divorce or having something like yours, where they lost like a close family member, close friend, other people struggling with depression, suicidal tendencies, things of that nature, and then being able to shed all that and move beyond and, and overcome it to build something greater in their lives. It's, it's really impressive. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's very fulfilling to me. It's heart fulfilling to me to see the shifts in people where I know there's some some coaches and consultants and all that that say they wait for the aha moment. And I'm like, I could care less about the aha moment because that just means that intellectually they've understood something. It's, ah, aha, I got that. I said, I'm always listening for that. Because hmm. when I hear that the guttural thing that they've really taken in energetically something that's important to them. Oh, absolutely. Like it's like you can intellectually understand all the principles of leadership or anything like that. But until you can really inhabit it and put it into action, it's it's not really going to do as much for you. Absolutely. Yes. I you know tell clients and that that if somebody wants information, they can Google it nowadays. It's insight that is really the difference that moves people up the ladder in uh, fast trajectories of change and greater success. And that insight is uh, important as to what is something, whatever that something is, what does that mean to me? And what am I going to do about it or not do about it? So across your career, what have you seen as the most common struggles in corporate leadership? Really, it's the, I don't need help, it's my team is the biggest thing, which is, again, the same thing I had with the NFL players is, there's nothing wrong with me. Have you seen my score? Have you seen my record? Have you seen all these things that I've done? And the same thing in corporate. Have you seen my title? Do you see the house I live in and the car that I drive? And I'm like, that's nice. If you're average to yourself or average to peers, then there's more places you can go. And I know that drive is within them to do better and to continue to grow. And yet they tend to not want to ask for help, not even believe that they need help. And the deep, deep-seated 
uh, fear or lack of confidence in certain areas, not all areas, obviously, but in certain areas is what will trip them up and keep them at a very high level, but they can be plateaued at a very high level. So it's a mix of overconfidence and lack of confidence in some ways, like they don't want to ask for help so that, because they're overconfident, but they really do need that help. And they're almost in denial of needing that help. Absolutely. It's a very fine line. And it's really the clients I work with, they've climbed a ladder of some sort, no matter whether it's in sports or entertainment or business, that they've gone through adversity. They've gone up and down in order to get to where they are, which is a normal journey. And because of that, they feel they have all the knowledge, the skills, the techniques, the abilities that they need to perform in their position. So for an example, I'll take uh, sports for an example, a college player who is drafted number one in football. And he gets onto the team and all of a sudden he's barely average, if that, when he gets among his peers who are the top 1% around the world playing in that league. And because of that, then they start to, they can either start to falter or they can puff up and think that they're going to make it anyway until they get hit a few times and realize that the game is a lot faster than they thought. The same thing in corporate, when you start moving up the ladder, each position you go to, there's a new level of uncertainty and that's uncertainty is what the brain really does not like. So it doesn't really grow. And yet the internal emotional side of us is, oh no, man, I can imagine what that could be like. So once they reach a certain point, it's really looking at how can we contextually change how they think about themselves, how they think about the team, uh, their team, how they think about their company and those around them so they can move to whatever that next level is for them. Interesting. So why do you believe that leadership is the key catalyst for a successful business? I'm going to, I'm going to shift that a little bit. I feel that leaders are the key catalyst and within a leader, they can be, they can have leadership skills, but the leader is really the catalyst where when they have what's called leadership presence, it's really that it goes back to that self-identity. As I mentioned, it's the contextual change of knowing where you want to go and contextually having that change of how you think about yourself, the way that you talk, the way that you carry yourself. Part of that is also having the, what I call tame and train your beast. It's your beliefs, your emotions, your acute awareness, your self-identity and the T is for your talk and walk. It's your verbal and nonverbal language. And then the consistency in all of that, your behaviors that match your message that you're putting out there. So when you can have that leadership presence as a leader, then people believe what you say and they will act accordingly. And they'll follow you when things are not working out so well, such as COVID. So then what do you take to be the most important principles of leadership? One is to, the first one is being self-aware, that self-identity, to learn how to ask questions. I talk about a coaching style of leadership, and it's asking a question in a way that evokes an answer, and an answer that's more than yes and no. And then we go back to listen again, because it's, you listen to contextually start to understand what the other person is attempting to get across, though there's might be an underlying reason why they're asking for it, a team member or a client or a you know resource partner. And then you listen deeply, you listen in for the tone of voice change, the tempo of the voice, 
the uh, words that they use because we all use reoccurring default language. And then you ask more questions again to go deeper. So really it's a leader speaking 20% of the time and letting those around them speak 80% of the time. And then you assess what's the impact, what's the gaps and laps about what they're, whatever the subject is. You ask more questions to find alignment. And then from there you look at action and how can you motivate and influence from there. So leaders really being those who develop others as opposed to being, I know it all. Absolutely. So would you say that a coaching style of leadership is the the best model out there or just one of many tools in the toolbox? I believe it's one of the best models out there. The coaching style of leadership, the coaching style can be different based on the person because it's not a one size fits all. My way of addressing people, I have a very authoritative voice. It is my voice. It's the way I am. I walk and talk in a large fashion. I bring a big presence into the room. Somebody else who, you know, I've mentioned sometimes Mother Teresa. I said, she's a quiet, it was a very tiny, small, quiet person, but boy, did she carry a powerful energy. So her leading style would be different than mine. And yet it both could be the coaching style of leadership, which is knowing how to ask the questions that maximize diversity and resources and expertise in any situation and can cause that you know, gateway to collaboration. And so you'd mentioned NLP earlier. And so I'm wondering, in order to get people to a coaching style of leadership, are you working against maybe some limiting beliefs or their own biases towards different styles of leadership? Yes and yes. We all have limiting beliefs. I've been in this industry of learning all the different modalities for almost 40 years now. I still have limiting beliefs. I have unconscious bias. It's a human nature thing. It's the question of being more aware of what are ours and also listening for what might be somebody else's uh, limiting belief or unconscious bias in being able to, again, whether it's ourselves or others, to work through those to bring our best self into any, any relationship, whether, like I say, it's with outside sources, clients, our team, or our peers. Do you have standard ways of working clients through overcoming their limiting beliefs, or is it more of a matter of looking at the dozens of different modalities you've learned over the years and figuring out which one is appropriate for an individual client? Yes, to the second one. There are some clients, one in particular I can think of, that he was so stressed out that he could barely sleep and walk and talk. And yet he traveled, you know, the country probably three, four times a week because he'd hop from one state to another state and oversee teams in those different states. So with him, the first thing I needed to do is teach him how to de-stress. And then from there, we can start looking at what's going on in the company. How is he behaving within his leadership? And how would he like to behave differently based on what are the results that he was looking to achieve? So we do a reverse engineer from where, where do you want to be? What results uh, and consequences do you want to have and reverse engineer that? In, and where are you now? And what are the, the top things that we need to address? Mm, wow. So you've worked with some top NFL players from multiple teams. And I'm wondering... What are the top lessons you've learned from working 
with people who are not only in that you know top one percent, one percent of the one percent of their field, but also <laughs> in an environment where there's already coaching going on, and you're trying to take them to a higher level. Absolutely, and you're right that they have they have the team head coach, they have their positional coaches. They have coaching for their strength and conditioning. So they're surrounded by coaches and they're used to being told since they were little kids what to do, when to do it, how to do it, go do it. And I'll tell you if you did it right or not. So they're used to that. The one thing that they don't have and the one thing, not all of them, but I work with my clients on is someone like myself who can help them with the mental and emotional side of the game. Oftentimes people talk about the mental game, which is only a third of the third of the issue. It's mental, emotional, and physiological. And when you change one, you change the other two. So first of all, it's understanding that. But when I'm working with someone as to the high performance they're going to have on the field, the first thing we talk about, I mentioned a little bit ago, is to de-stress. So there's techniques that I teach them to be able to de-stress in the moment, the techniques I use, even though I believe fully believe in meditation and yoga and all these things I think are phenomenal, it's really tough to do that on a sideline or in the middle of a business meeting. So the techniques that I teach not only affect the de-stressing, they affect the autonomic nervous system, they affect the rewiring of the brain in a way that you can choose how you want to think and feel in certain situations. The second thing is going to be around situational, situational awareness is really asking the questions to know and understand how do I want to think, how do I want to feel in this moment, in this situation. And because everything changes so fast, fast in, in NFL. It was the same way when I was in construction is there were no two days that were ever the same and every five minutes it changed. In NFL, it's every second or two it changes based on what occurred just occurred on the field. So it's having the situa situational awareness, asking the right questions so that your brain can focus on and be present in the moment. The third thing I work with them on, and this is a huge thing, is what I call e-imagination, e-imagination. It's imagining with emotion. And I've worked with sports as well as in business with imagining the perfect outcome to a situation and be able to see it, smell it, feel it, be just absorbed in whatever the situation is that we're looking to affect and do it using emotions because emotions are the glue to memory. And without emotions, it's just a nice thought. It's a nice positive thought that are useless unless we have the emotion that goes with it. Interesting. It almost sounds like it's inspired by like Neville Goddard and law of assumption type of stuff, like using your imagination in an emotional way to put yourself, don't just think of that outcome, but live in that outcome, like think from it rather than of it. Yeah, it's inspired by so many people, scientists and biologists and spiritual leaders and everybody else that I've um, listened to and trained with over the years, uh, going way, way back into before my time that came up with all these different uh, potentials and possibilities and uh, using them in a way that works best for my career. Are you seeing over the course of your career, have you seen a shift in these sports leagues towards not just individuals coming to services such as yours, but teams actually adopting like, hey, we need a, a mental health leadership life coach type of people on staff, like in the actual clubhouse? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are teams that 
for sure have someone like me on staff that work with the individual players as well as the team of players because you've got the three different aspects of offense, defense, and special teams. So they could work with those individual teams as well because each one of those work and act differently. There are different personalities that go into each one of those teams, but then also with the coaches. You know, I worked individually years ago. I worked individually with the players. And at the time, players would tell me that they might have someone like me on staff, but they're not, they wouldn't go to them because they were afraid that we'd get back to one of their coaches and then they might lose their position because they'd be thought of as weak. Nowadays, mm. they're bringing people in like me because they realize that it is the key that without the ability to manage, self-manage your thoughts and emotions and physiological conditioning, that uh, I don't care how good you win, it'll take you out in a heartbeat. Yeah, I definitely saw that dynamic play out in the army where you'd have like mental health counselors or anything else like that. But if you did anything that the chain of command would find out about, you just get branded and if not put out of the army or something. So many people who might just need very small amount of help or just a push in the right direction or just some building up some resiliency or something, they would just never get help because it would be like, oh, you're yeah, you're weak or there'd just be all these other stigmas around it uh, that it could jeopardize your position. And it's okay, we've got 22 veterans a day killing themselves. And we obviously need to do something different, especially when, you know, suicide numbers on active duty would often be just as high, if not higher for people who had never deployed as for people who had deployed. So there's certainly like a lot of pretty terrible dynamics going on that people then wouldn't address for fear of the actual fallout. There absolutely is. And the reality is when you look at not only uh, somebody like a football player who's beaten the, excuse me, but beating the crap out of each other on a weekly basis during practice and during a game, you take that over and there's a great, there's been a lot of things written about the similarity between that and those who are in the military who are in life and death situations. And, and they don't even necessarily be, have to be in life and death. They could be somebody who's working a drone that causes death that can come out of it, or they just saw it or heard it, or we saw the towers go down or things like that that can call, cause you know, PTSD that sits in a very deep part of the mind. And some of the team, excuse me, some of the techniques I teach are taught in every branch of the military, not to everyone in every branch of the military, but in every branch and to their the members of their family at home who go through all the stress and worry and concern. And it helps people know and understand how they can self-manage what they think and they feel and they can do it in the moment because someone in the military... Um, they often have that macho aspect of it as well, that I can do this or I should be able to do this on my own. So for somebody to come in and say, do this and do that, it's not going to work. When taught how to self-manage so they can see the difference, they can feel the difference, they know they're the ones in control of it, that can make a huge difference. In fact, I'll tell a really quick story that there was a, a gentleman from the military, I don't recall which branch, happened to be at a conference where the techniques that I used were being taught. And he wrote a letter afterwards to HeartMath, which is where I've taken a lot of my training as well. And I told them, he said, I had, I had my uniform laid out. I had all my medals laid out. I had my, and everything was pressed and across my bed and my holster was there and my gun was beside it. And I was going home to kill myself. 
until I felt the effect of just that small example that was given and people were allowed to experience it in the moment and realize that I can do that. And that little bit of a tweak was enough to help him get more help to help himself. Wow. So tell me, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? I think one of them, when I was years ago, when I moved out to Arizona and I was a, after my family was settled, had two kids at the time, and I was able to get a job as a receptionist, which my entire goal was get out of the house, not talk baby talk and make enough money to uh, afford the preschool for my son that was more than cut and paste and uh, have a position that I felt fit me. Because again, high school diploma, small town girl, receptionist seemed to be the fit. Uh, I won't go through the whole story, but I ended up six months later, I applied for and got a job as the construction accountant for our sister company, directly across the hall from uh, where I sat, taking phone messages and greeting people. When I first started out, there was a time when I was responsible for putting together a application for money and you put together from the owner of a construction project and the application that you put together would have called line items. So it might be concrete on a line item and the subcontractors for doing the roofing or doing the walls or doing whatever the case may be. I made a mistake and left one of those line items out. It was a $200,000 mistake. So when we got paid and I was going to cut the checks to pay the subcontractors, I realized that I had made this error. And it was that error. Once I had to go in and tell our construction manager what had happened. Luckily, the mother company had the funds they could pay it. But I can remember how I felt the fact that I could have caused the subcontractor to not get paid or get paid less, which means they wouldn't be able to pay their payroll potentially. I don't know for a fact. That stuck with me to where from that point on, I create what I call cheat sheets that if there's something that I'm going to do more than once, I'm going to create a cheat sheet so that um, I have every step that I can think of listed in there. And then if I find out I've either missed a step or I need more definition to the step, I just fill it in. But it has saved me so much time and effort moving forward that I continue to do it to this day. Wow. It's intense. (laughs) My life is intense, friend. (laughs) I did great white shark dives. That was intense. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Drove a 600 horsepower race car. That was intense. So. Oh, wow. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. To me, I have continued to invest in myself along the way. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars, I have really, I do call it investment in myself over the years to understand myself better, to help myself grow, to learn and understand how my brain, my conscious, subconscious works, how my emotional system and body works, how physiologically that I can help myself and others, and then apply that to others has been huge. So the investment I started out in the beginning to figure out we'll bookend it here (laughs) to figure out how do I get past these feelings around my brother, not being able to say his name or smell aquanet hairspray. 
has come full fold to how I have gone through all the learning and growing of myself that has allowed me to not just take the ladder, I jump a lot of steps really quickly and be able to have the life that I've had working with a lot of the clients that I've worked with and feeling the emotional fulfillment of having, knowing that I've changed, helped them change their life in some way for the better. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Oh man, I'm trying to look at my bookshelf right now. I can't read that far. There's been so many over the years. One of the most current ones, I think it's called Impossible. It's around flow and getting into the flow state. I'm a big fan and have studied with for quite a few years with Dr. Joe Dispenza. So any of his books, I'll stop with, oh, there's another one. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared for that question. Sorry. Oh, it's all good. Joe Dispenza has got a whole library. Yeah. And I've studied with him before he ever started writing books or broke out on his own and that. I used to go uh, several times to the Ramtha School of Enlightenment, where he was one of our instructors back in the day where we were studying quantum physics. And he was quite good and quite impressive then and has even become more so over the years. Mm. Oh, definitely. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? I think it's a combination of respect. I'd say respect, love and respect yourself. So as we are able to first love ourselves, I am a true believer that we can't truly and fully love others until we love ourselves. And to also have respect because the respect aspect of it is, uh, doing things, behaving in a way, saying things with and around others that you can look yourself in the mirror and say, yes, I respect myself for behaving in that way. So one's internal, one's a little bit more external, but the external still becomes internal. Mm, beautiful. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice you think they should ignore? Yeah, most. Ignore anything <laughs> on anything in social media. And the reason I say that is too often we are influenced by others. And the reality is when we can be more internal to find out what it is we truly desire and then act in that way, no matter what somebody else says or does, that's huge. And it's really why I even wrote the book, Average is an Addiction, because get it and say, we are addictive behavior, addictive as people. We all are. We're addictive to, addicted to our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs that are repeated. And when we start to follow what others say and do, thinking that's the way it's supposed to be done, we end up not being very happy with ourselves. So it's really playing the internal game and then taking the internal game into the external world and applying it out there is when we have the most fulfillment in life. Even when I'll do a, just a really quick example that if there, I'm going to go back to sports for a minute. Even if there's someone who, let's say in uh, basketball, 
they shoot a certain, you take, I'll give an example, Michael Jordan, when he was going to the basket, the tongue came out, he was flying through the air and everything else. Somebody else doing that might go, oh my God, he looks so stupid. Why would he ever do that? I'm never going to do something like that. I don't want anybody making fun of me or making a meme out of it or whatever. That was his way of doing it. That's what worked for him. And I find that with a lot of people that I uh, work with, whether they're in business or in sports, that they have a way that works for them and when they can take their way and make it work within their industry and expertise, that's when things start to really flow with them and around them. Mm, I love that. Just embracing the authenticity of exactly of yourself. Yeah. Mm. So how have you found mentors and advisors throughout your career? In the beginning, I did a lot of looking at, I did two things. I was looking at two, two worlds. One was the science. So I was looking for biologists and scientists and things, people that could um, really explain how the mind, the body, the emotional system, the every aspect of us works as a team together and works against us. Because that to me gave, I'm very, I can get very analytic, analytical and very bullet pointed in, tell me the path, give me the framework. The other aspect was I looked at the spiritual aspect. So again, it goes back to the insight. So what does all this mean to me? How do I take all this in and apply it to me in a way that matters to me? And then once I knew how it mattered to me, then I could look at how could it matter to others. When I tend to try to find a coach, it's difficult for me because I carry a very, and I've been told this by a lot of people, a very strong energy, which I've learned to live with. And because of that, I can scare the bejesus out of people, not meaning to, just by being me. And being very direct. So that part's been a little bit more difficult to find somebody who can hold my feet to the fire when need be. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Are there any quotes that you think of often or that you live your life by? The first one that comes to mind is a do unto others type of thing. I have one. It's actually my own quote that is when you matter to you. What others think of you won't matter. And it really goes back a bit to what I just said earlier. Mm. And I have to remind myself of that at times. Oh, I like that one. It's a good one. Thank you. So Bonnie, Bonnie Raitt in one of her, Bonnie Raitt, now this goes back in time again, but she had uh, <laughs> in one of her songs, whether your sunglasses are off and off, whether your sunglasses are off or on, you only see the world you make. And I always like that lyric. Mm, that's a good one. Thank so you. So who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? My dad was one of my biggest heroes. Now my dad got his, he came from Kentucky, tobacco farming. So as a little kid, he used to stutter a lot and he used to get, you know, bullied by the kids and that type of thing. He also learned how to work hard because it was farming country. And in those days that when the crops needed to be tended to, everybody got pulled out of school and you went back and you worked on, you worked the field. At growing up, he got his GED when I was in something like seventh or eighth grade. And yet he was one of the smartest men I've ever known, just from a practical sense. He was a mechanic, he used to be a mechanic and on locomotives and then on 
cars and then around office buildings and whatever mechanical stuff needs to be done in office buildings. But he was very kind and gentle and yet had a discipline that I truly respected and hard work. And one of the things he said, in fact, I wrote about it in my, I think it was uh, Averages and Addiction book, that he had always said when we were, I'd go out and help work on cars and stuff with him. And when we were done with whatever the task was, he would always stop and you know, wipe off all the tools, put them all back in the place and stuff in the toolbox so he could find them again. And he had told me, he said, you always take care of the tools that provide your living and provide what whatever task you need to complete. And I remembered that even at night I clean up my desk and I make sure everything is put away and around my house and things like that. Because when I need something, I want to be able to put my hands on. And he was always full of lessons and a very easy person to go to, to ask for advice. In fact, my two kids have gone to him many times, asked for advice as well while he was uh, still living. Sounds like you're very lucky. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I had two really good parents who cared for me and weren't afraid to discipline in a way that taught me a lesson without emotionally or physically damaging me in any way. That's the goal, right? <laughs> it is a goal. It is a goal. All it took was a look sometimes from my dad. And I thought, oh, yeah. Oh, man. A disappointment. I was like, I don't want to disappoint him. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked earlier about some of the strategies that you recommend for your clients, but I'd love to know what are your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, or techniques? One is in the morning, I will often get up, go to the bathroom, get back into bed, prop myself up, put my, my iPods in, and I have different types of music or meditation music I might listen to. And sometimes it's just music and just allows me because I can do self-hypnosis to just relax and allow my imagination to go wherever my imagination wants to go and tap into wherever it wants to tap into. And then there are times when I'll listen to music that is ever increasing. So it becomes more pounding if I'm looking to build some courage or confidence because I can energetically follow the music. And then sometimes I have guided meditations as well that I might use, but it's, you know, really to set myself up for the day so that I start my day in the way that I choose. And uh, I do a lot of visualization. It doesn't take me long, even going maybe on a podcast like this or into a meeting or whatever. I've done it so often that I can just sit for a moment and visualize the end result that I'm looking to achieve so that then I'm always moving towards that end result without worrying about the how to get it done. And then gratitude in the evening. Mm -hmm. A couple of great practices there. Yeah, thank you. So Deborah, this has been a really fun and enlightening conversation, but it does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? That's a great question. I'm thinking of what does kindness mean to me? I think kindness to me, I'm going to envelop it within empathy. And when someone takes the time could be from another country, could be sitting right across from me, but takes the time to truly connect and truly listen to the inner self that's talking, no matter what my words are. That to me is kindness because they 
care enough to take the time and listen beyond the words that are spoken. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Very reflective. Thank you so much for joining me today, Deborah. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak. Thank you, Pacifico. It's been amazing talking to you as well. And you've got some great questions. And I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so And the much. opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Pleasure is all mine. Today's episode was brought to you by the HOCL Association. If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Mm-hmm.